Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to the July edition of Push Dose EMS. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, Clinical Education Manager for Milwaukee County. Uh, joining me is a list of usual suspects. Uh, so going down my list, I have Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. EMS Division Director, Dan Podra. Welcome, Dan. Hello, Jeff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back, Dr. Growley. Yes, yeah, so join us both of our assistant medical directors this month. So Dr. Engel, welcome, Dr. Engel. Hey, Jeff, what's going on? I'm happy to be back here. Excellent. And Dr. Growey, welcome, Dr. Growey, to your first round with Push to OCMS. Hey, thanks for having me. Excellent. Excited to have everybody here today. Uh, sort of a kickoff to our quarter three educational movement and looking uh, taking deep dives into cardiology. So before we jump too much into the topic of the day, I'll turn it over for any system updates to Dan. Dan. Thanks, Jeff. Yes, I just have one fairly large update, actually, for the system regarding image trend and the run form. I know we've teased this a few times um, over the past several months, but now it's finally coming to fruition. So we are finishing up uh, with the final run form to be deployed uh, to the system. Uh, a little bit of reason for the delay was because there was a change in federal and state reporting requirements through the NEMSIS system, which is the National EMS Information System. So they have updated their version to 3.5, which asks for a little bit more data collection for some very specific disease processes, such as cardiac uh, and also uh, trauma in particular. Um, with this data also being on a unified platform, this will have an opportunity for us to have cleaner data so we can provide you guys with quality analytics and a better understanding of the disease burden in our community. And we'll also have increased uh, compliance with various reporting registries, such as the cardiac arrest registry, which recognizes our system for excellent out-of-hospital cardiac arrest care, and other registries such as the trauma uh, registry with the state. So a few different bodies that we report into uh, and typically get recognition either at the state or national level for the excellent quality care that we provide. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Awesome work by the team putting that together. I know that was a big lift, uh, getting that new run form up. And for those listening, uh, stay tuned. In a few weeks, there'll be a special edition of Push Dose EMS coming out that'll do a little bit more deep dive into uh, all the things that we're looking at in Nemesis 3.5. And then before we get rolling, a message from Medical Direction. Dr. Weston, back to you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So today we're going to really get into the weeds, but in a good way, on an important topic that can certainly create challenges in the pre hospital environment. What is atrial fibrillation? How do we approach and understand atrial fibrillation and what may be driving it in our patients and how best should we treat it? How do we decide when and which medications are appropriate? Now our two assistant medical directors, Dr. Growey and Dr. Engel have a great discussion lined up for you. So let's get right to it, Jeff. Awesome, thanks so much, Dr. Weston. And now into our topic and to kick us off into cardiology, I will turn it over to Drs. Engel and Growey. Gentlemen. Appreciate that. We're really excited to be here. You got Dr. Ingalls and Dr. Growey, uh, two of your assistant medical directors. And I think you all probably have maybe noticed by now, but Dr. Growey has really come back to OEM um, while still being always a part of the Medical College of Wisconsin's EMS division um, and coming back to really start with some high-speed assistant medical directing here as of, you know, in the last month. So pretty excited to have you, Tom. Um, any thoughts so far right now, Tom, about how your experience has been going in the last month? Uh, it's been going real great. It's good to uh, get to see, you know, people again, some familiar faces. And uh, 
you know, get more involved and, and help out with the cool stuff that OEM's got going on. Yeah. And if you all didn't remember, uh, Dr. Growie is the medical director for Kenosha Fire Department, and he's really a national leader in EMS, um, specifically with EMS education. He is the medical director for um, Gateway Technical College for their uh, paramedic program. So he really is an awesome EMS educator. So we're really thankful to have him. Um, and he and I are going to kind of do a little bit of a back and forth here on Diltiazam. You know, next month, you'll really be seeing Dr. Growie and then our new EMS fellow, Dr. Elijah Dahlstrom, um, coming from Iowa. Really excited to have him around. Remember, he's a full-functioning emergency medicine doc, spending a year with us at the medical college doing uh, EMS fellow work. So you'll be seeing a lot from him in the uh, upcoming podcasts and educational spaces. So with that said, uh, you know, I'm going to have Dr. Growie kind of introduce this month's topic of atrial fibrillation and diltiazem for our cardiology corner. Great. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about AFib and DILT. You know, and really this is something that comes up a lot with cases that we discuss with online med control physicians, as well as with uh, the crews in the field. You know, uh, about 60 to 70 times per year, there's an online med control consult uh, regarding DILT administration. And we noticed there are some varying outcomes of requests for the DILT. So Sometimes it said, yeah, go ahead, give the DILT. Sometimes they say, I'll hold off. And there are a lot of different reasons why these uh, happen. You know, some of this appropriate, some inappropriate. And, you know, what we want you to know is that we're approaching this just like we do other CQIP and quality improvement initiatives in the county, um, looking for opportunities to improve it, to improve performance and to build a better system uh, for you guys to function in. So the really one of the big purposes of the discussion today is we want to provide some clarity and some alignment on the appropriate treatment of stable atrial fibrillation with RVR. Um, emphasis on stable because remember, if you have an unstable patient, uh, diltiazem is not the answer. It's cardioversion. So we'll, we'll mostly kind of take that unstable population out for the discussion today and focus on the stable AFib with uh, RVR patient. So, you know, like any intervention, the skill with this really comes with the nuance of when to give DILT and when not to give DILT. It really is no different than when you're treating somebody with asthma, COPD, you know, we're considering a needle decompression and chest trauma. You got to figure out what you're treating and why you're treating it, you know, and whether that intervention is appropriate based on that. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really great way of thinking about it, Dr. Growie. So as we talk through this, we're going to be really pulling those unstable patients out because I cannot stress enough how important it is to recognize an unstable tachycardia and really providing the appropriate uh, immediate cardioversion treatment as being your, your treatment of choice in the field. You know, while that's the, the, the really exciting portion of uh, AFib with RVR, we're going to be talking more about those stable folks here. So as we start talking about AFib with RVR, what really is atrial fibrillation, Dr. Grawe? Yeah, so an AFib is an abnormal rhythm of the atrium. So normally in the in the cardiac conduction cycle, you have an SA node that likes to beat the heart somewhere between a rate of 60 to 100. In atrial fibrillation, what's really happening is all these other pacemaker cells that you have scattered throughout the atria, all are firing at pretty much the same time. So you're actually getting pacemaker cells firing at about 400 to 600 times per minute. Thankfully, the AV node stops the vast majority of those, along with some issues with uh, refractory periods in the atria. 
So really, when patients that are in atrial fibrillation, they don't tack along around 416, thank God, because they die instantly. <laughs> but um, but they tend to do they tend to be tachycardic. Um, and it's pretty abnormal actually if somebody has new onset AFib and they're not on any uh, AV nodal blocking medications like beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, pretty abnormal for them not to be tachycardic, actually. So we do expect AFib to be tacky without any medication interventions. Uh, when it gets to the management of atrial fibrillation, and that's kind of what the crux of what we're looking at today, it's really based around getting rid of the rhythm altogether. So either taking somebody who's in a fib and putting them back into a normal sinus rhythm, and that's what we do with cardioversion, or you try to increase the AV nodal blockade, which really takes a heart rate of uh, when you've got a fib to let's say 140. You give some beta blockers, some calcium channel blockers, and our case some diltiazin, it increases that AV nodal action and prevents the amount of AFib waves that can go all the way through the heart. So instead of beating at 140, when you give something like DILT, your heart rate will come down to, you know, I mean, it totally varies, but, you know, 130, 120, 100, 90, 80, you know, whatever, depending upon many different factors. Now, the last point that I think is really one of the big crucial things when we're talking about rate control, which is what we're doing with DILT with AFib. Remember that not all tachycardia is bad. You know, if I had uh, just, you know, ran a marathon, you'd expect me to be tachycardic. And the last thing that you would do is give me diltiazin to treat that, right? Um, so you really got to think about why your patient in AFib is tachycardic. And if it's tachycardia for the sake of tachycardia, then that's usually, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more, but that's usually when we're looking for DILT. But if it's tachycardia because somebody is septic, where you would expect them to be tachycardic, maybe DILT necessarily isn't the right answer. You wouldn't treat a septic patient who's in sinus tach with some kind of nodal blocking agent like DILT. So you don't necessarily want to do the same thing with AFib. So again, it's, it's really about what I kind of mentioned earlier, identifying and treating the cause of the tachycardia um, and considering DILT kind of after you get into that a little bit. Thanks, Dr. Grau. Yeah, that, you know, I think we have a pretty good background now of what AFib is. The one thing I wanted to kind of bring up is as we're talking about, we need to know what we're treating first. So making sure you're correctly identifying that AFib with RBR on your EKG, remembering that it's going to look like an, uh, an irregular, irregular, narrow complex tachycardia almost every time. So what that means is it's not that wide complex tachycardia because that should be concerning for VTAC in your mind. It's also not uh, atrial flutter or SVT, SVT being a regular narrow complex tachycardia and uh, atrial flutter having those, those sawtooths going all the way across. So remember, we're literally looking for that irregular, irregular, narrow complex tachycardia in almost all cases, which can be really important because we don't identify the correct EKG findings, then we're going to go down the wrong treatment pathway. Yeah, so let's let's get into DILT a little bit. So, uh, Dr. Engel, do you want to tell us a little bit about DILT and, and how it works? Yeah, sure. I was hoping to kind of hit up the mechanism of action of diltiazem first. So what really is diltiazem? Well, it's a calcium channel blocker. Specifically, it's in the non-dihydropyridine class. Um, the therapeutic effects occur through various mechanisms of diltiazem, but primarily diltiazem inhibits the inflow of calcium ions into the cardiac muscles during electrical depolarization. This can lead to a decreased heart rate by slowing the conduction of the electrical signal from the SA to the AV node. Also, this can relax smooth muscles that line your blood vessels and lead to an additional drop in blood pressure. 
thus you tend to get a, a reduction in both heart rate and blood pressure, specifically with deltiazem as well. So remembering that, you know, there's a couple mechanisms of action, but also getting that reduction of heart rate and blood pressure at the same time with deltiazem. Yeah, and that's a great point. And that really highlights one of the many reasons why we don't like to give DILT to people who are hypotensive, because you're going to just probably drive the blood pressure even lower, which in a hypotensive patient is uh, not a great idea. So tell us a little bit about some of the indications, contraindications to DILT that we should be considering. Sure. So overall, you know, diltiazem on a whole used throughout the entire medical spectrum is used specifically for three main things, for controlling blood pressure, reducing anginal symptoms in some high-risk cardiac patients, and also to slow specific tachycardic rhythms. And in our system, we specifically use diltiazem for those AFib with RVR patients or patients with an irregular, irregular, narrow complex, stable tachycardia. And what are some situations where we wouldn't want to use guilt? What are the contraindications? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's funny. The contraindications are probably the things that the medication does just on the extreme end of the spectrum. So obviously, if this medicine is going to slow your heart rate, we would not want to use it with somebody who's already bradycardic. If this medicine causes relaxation of the smooth muscles around blood vessels, we probably don't want to use it in somebody who's hypotensive. And then there is one more that we do list for you. It's a little bit more of a rare uh, contraindication, but it would be somebody with Wolf-Parkinson-White WPW syndrome. If you remember a little bit about this, this is an abnormal conduction pathway within the heart of some folks that have a structural anomaly. Um, and they have this little bundle of Kent that allows the electrical signal to sometimes bypass the AV node. And unfortunately, if you give somebody a medication that's going to slow the heart rate, potentially slow the rate through the AV node, um, the electrical pathway could go down that bundle of Kent and cause a really degenerative rhythm in these folks, such as VT or VF. And we all know that those are really bad things to happen to a patient. So if your patient has WPW, we wouldn't give them diltiazem to prevent the possible cause of VFib, VTAC from the uh, diltiazem administration. Yeah, I just love when you talk about contraindications for a drug, and sometimes you feel like they can be hard. It's, oh, it's one more thing I got to remember. But so many times it's just the issues that it's really just the problem that the drug causes, you know, or they're just not indications. Like if somebody's not tachycardic, why would you want to give them a medicine that slows the heart rate, you know? Um, and same thing, uh, hypotension, you know, with that, with that same idea. So after we give someone DILT, let's say we talk to online med control, we give DILT, like what are some things that we should be looking out for after we give the medication? What might we see, you know, what, what should we keep an eye out for and be ready to intervene on? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing, anytime you give it, you administer medication, probably up in this, the contraindication portion, I should have put allergic, like the patient is allergic to this medication. I would hope that we all kind of know that we, we take a good medical history, ask about allergies. So the first thing would be an allergic reaction. I think it's going to be relatively rare, but it's always possible with any medication that we give. The other two are going to be some of the same things that we're thinking about in the contraindications. You're going to be watching the patient's blood pressure and their heart rate, because this medication lowers both blood pressure and heart rate. So you should be making sure that you have them on continuous cardiac monitoring, and you're doing regular evaluations of the patient, and you're regularly rechecking their blood pressure to make sure they're not getting hypotensive on you. Great. So let's say, let's just kind of go off that a little bit. Don't mean to sidetrack too much. So let's say we give DILT, you know, patient's got a heart rate of 140. We give some DILT, their heart rate comes down to, you know, 120, 100, but now their blood pressure gets a little soft and, you know, let's say the upper 80s, low 90s, you know, what do you, what should we do in that case? 
Yeah. So first thing, a lot of people would go back and be like, well, there's still an atrial fibrillation. Do I need to cardiovert them? Cause they're now hypotensive. But if you think about the need for cardioversion, you're doing that because their, their tachycardia is so out of control. So a rate of 110, even in atrial fibrillation still would not make me think to cardiovert them. I think some other easy answers, you know, repositioning the patient, watching them closely. And then if the patient can tolerate it, it's not unreasonable to give them a standard IV fluid bolus. You know, in our system, we use 20 cc's per kg as a standard bolus. We recognize you're probably not going to get that all into them, but a little bit of additional IV fluids, if the patient can tolerate it and it's indicated, wouldn't be an unreasonable answer. Great. And I love your, your discussion on the unstable nature of AFib, you know, so you're really trying to figure out in that case, like, is the hypotension coming from the fast heart rate or not? And it makes sense that we would give fluids after trying those uh, other things like repositioning the patient, et cetera, because again, we're causing the smooth muscles in the, in the blood vessels to relax a little bit, the blood vessels to dilate a little bit. So we can fill that tank up a little bit if we think it's indicated you know, based on the rest of the clinical presentation. So as we've kind of gone through all these notes on DIL, any other like special considerations that people should think about? Um, you know, I, I always want to pull in a little bit of advanced knowledge and research for this. You know, there've been at least three studies that have looked at diltiazem in the field, in the pre-hospital setting for folks who are stable atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. All three studies have demonstrated that diltiazem in the appropriate patient, which we're going to go on with Dr. Grauer to kind of really think about who really is appropriate for diltiazem, is a really safe and effective uh, about 60% of the time after the first dose. By safety, we mean if you give it to the correct person, which we're going to talk about, uh, you don't have any of those adverse side effects that I talked about previously. And then effective being you decrease their heart rate by somewhere between 20 and 30 points or 20 and 30 uh, beats per minute which would demonstrate that, you know, they're getting a little bit better and their heart rate's coming down out of that more severe range that we talk about for its administration. You know, the other thing to really think about the tiazam is you got to be facile with how you're actually going to administer the medications. And because liquid diltiazem needs to be refrigerated, our system typically carries the powder format. So to do this actual administration, you have to, I'm going to remind you again, People get confused when they look at this medication and they're like, how do I exactly make this into a liquid? Well, first you have to remove the rubber caps from both the saline bag and the powder medication vial. You then need to seat the medication vial into the saline holder. And it's critical that you push hard and twist to make sure that they're well connected. Then through the saline bag, you need to remove the inner stopper on the saline bag to allow the powder to mix with the saline. This inner stopper will float around in the saline bag. That's fine. It's not going to hurt anything. You can then gently mix the saline and the powder medication back and forth a few times and checking to make sure that the bottom of the medication vial and the saline bag to make sure that there's no powder stuck to it. Now, this is really critical. You need an accurate weight on the patient because diltiazem is a weight-based medication. And then it should be administered slowly over two minutes because sometimes if you were to really push this really fast, you can get a really rapid rush of hypotension or bradycardia, which obviously would be bad. The thing you also want to make sure you do is that you're going to be removing the appropriate dose based on the weight off of the saline bag. And additionally, remembering that the dose is going to be important to make sure that you know what concentration of diltiazem you're carrying. Um, we have both 25 milligrams per 5 ml or 100 milligrams per 5 ml within the system. So you want to make sure that you're appropriately identifying the concentration of medication that you're carrying. So then you can appropriately identify that weight-based dose there. Um, so really, really key that you know how to identify your concentration and identify the appropriate amount and then give it release so we do not cause any of those bad side effects with the patient.
So as Dr. Engel mentioned, there is, you know, a couple different steps to getting this medication used, and it's not something that you're doing on a daily basis. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast with, with other people on shift, or if you're looking for something to talk about at the kitchen table, do some kitchen table training, you know, it'd be a great idea to just kind of sit down and go over DILT, how we mix it up, get some of the equipment out, figure out where it is on your rig and familiarize yourself with it, you know, so that you guys can be more likely to be successful with it. With these kind of a little bit more intricate medication administrations, um, the more you can kind of practice it and get some reps on it, the better you're going to be, the more confident you're going to be when you do it. And remember, this really emphasizes the importance of a medication cross-check as well and getting that guideline out if you're not 100% sure what the right dose is or, you know, all the steps to mix it up. So great points. All right. So now, um, now that we talked a little bit about DILT, you know, let's kind of talk about some clinical scenarios and uh, go over some just overall approach to AFib. So Dr. Engel, you know, let's say you're working in the emergency department. Um, you've got a patient that comes in with uh, atrial fibrillation with RBR. What's going through your head? What's, what's your general approach? Yeah, good question. You know, first thing I always want to know when someone's like hands me an EKG that shows AFib with RBR is I want to know, is this patient stable or unstable is the first question that I'm asking myself. And the things I'm going to use are not just blood pressure. You know, hypotension is your is an easy numerical scale that tells us if somebody's stable or unstable. But remember, there's all those other end organ findings that you have to pick up on a, both a history and a rapid a rapid history and a rapid physical exam with folks. I also want to know: Is this patient experiencing like ischemic sounding chest pain? Are they extremely short of breath, or do they have extreme alter or even moderate altered mental status that I believe is from the tachycardia? of the atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. Those are kind of my first initial thoughts. Yeah. So, and you've kind of mentioned this a couple of times, and I think this is something I think about all the time when I've got a tachycardic patient with AFib and I'm trying to figure out if the instability tachycardia, how, how do you decide like, oh, this is instability, this guy's hypotensive, and this is from the tachycardia, or this guy's hypotensive, but it's because he's got septic shock and happens to be an AFib? To be honest, there's no set 100% way to figure this out. This really, I have to take those years of training that we have, that clinical gestalt, those hundreds of and even thousands of patients that we've seen throughout our career, and then make sure do I do a really good history and physical exam. There's things that I'm gonna you're gonna want to ask about. You're gonna want to ask about signs of infection and look for them on your physical exam. You're gonna want to ask about signs of volume status, looking for dry mucous membranes, talking to a patient about having large volume output, such as a lot of vomiting or diarrhea lately. And you're gonna want to talk to a patient and see are they experiencing volume overloads. Their legs are getting bigger. Their shoes aren't fitting. They feel like they can't lie flat at night. They've missed the dialysis session. All those things kind of go into this. So I'm trying to reasonably pull those things out of my evaluation of a patient to lead me to the ability to say, okay, I don't think anything else is, is causing this unstable patient outside of the tachycardia. So I'm going to go ahead and treat that atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response in an unstable patient with, you know, electricity or specifically cardioversion. Those are great. The one other thing that I kind of also look at as part of my assessment is kind of looking at the actual heart rate and not that there, there, again, there's no set cutoff, but I think about if this was a normal person and this wasn't AFib, 
would this heart rate be a likely perfusing heart rate? You know, so if I've got somebody that's got a heart rate of 120, you know, people walk around with heart rates of 120, you know, when they're a little sick or when they're dehydrated or whatnot. So 120 is probably less likely, you know, this is not hard and fast, but less likely to be unstable from the heart rate. But again, if I look at the AFib with RVR and it's 180, you know, my likelihood of that instability coming from the AFib is a lot more likely than if it's 120, you know, somewhere in the 150 range, you get really fuzzy, really hairy, because there are a lot of other factors to this, like the patient's cardiac function in general. But, um, you know, I, I like how you really stress the idea of doing a complete assessment and kind of considering all these things to paint a picture of uh, instability. Yeah. Uh, I think really that 150 range for me is that important cutoff part. And then I'm also really, you know, you're trying to find those other things that be, can be causing that patient to be tachycardic, which would be appropriate for them to be tachycardic from those other problems, such as septic shock, such as uh, a heart failure exacerbation, such as severe volume depletion. You're trying to find those because those would necessitate other treatments, right? Treatments for those specific medical problems because that atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response is a compensatory response that's appropriate for those underlying medical problems. So, and I would say that these are the things that when you call on medical control that they are wondering, you know, that they're going through in their head to decide whether DILT is appropriate right now. You know, so if you call med control, you paint a picture and you've got this patient that's really septic, um, you know, and they've got AFib with a heart rate of, you know, 160, you know, 150, they're probably going to say, hey, it sounds like we should treat the sepsis with fluids before going towards diltiazem. So when you're thinking about, you know, that MTAC format and you get to the part where you're giving more background information about what's going on with the, uh, with the patient requesting DILT, make sure that you're given a full picture of what, of what the clinical presentation is, because that's what they're going to be looking for. And those docs are doing that because there's really, really good solid data out there that if you use diltiazem prior to fixing the driving medical problem with the patient, such as sepsis, such as acute heart failure exacerbation, you're actually going to lead to worse outcomes and even increased uh, clinical death in those folks. So that's why we're really always trying to focus on that underlying problem to see if that's the thing that we have to treat. And, you know, getting back to what we were talking about, remember, we're going to be focusing on those stable atrial fibrillation with rapid response folks. And we got a couple of scenarios here that, do you want me to run these to you, Dr. Growley? Is that cool if I read them to you and you yeah, tell me what your thoughts sure. are for them? All right, cool. We got five scenarios here. So we've got a 54-year-old male who's otherwise healthy. He's presenting with shortness of breath and some palpitations. He looks well to you. He's sitting on his kitchen at his kitchen table. You get an EKG that shows AFib with a rate of 146 and a normal blood pressure. He has no other complaints in your physical exam outside of a rapid irregular heart rate is totally normal. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about my, you know, kind of differential for what's going on with this patient, he doesn't appear to have much else going on besides AFib, you know, so this, this kind of weird term that I say is I say like he's AFib for the sake of AFib. He's AFib because he's just saying AFib and some people get that, you know, so, so this would be somebody who would be uh, indicated for DILT, you know, he doesn't appear to be dry, so he doesn't get fluids. Um, he doesn't appear to be in forward heart failure. And I will say that those are kind of the two main things that I really think about um, with most patients up front. And then we'll get into some other cases here, but um, he doesn't appear to have any indications for treatment for those. So this would be a good candidate for, uh, for DILT. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I'm going to, I'll flip it a little bit and give you another one. An 86 year old female, she has a history of AFib. She's on some Eliquis, which we know is a blood thinner. Um, and she's presenting really, you get called out for black stools. She's been having black stools for three days with some abdominal pain and feeling dizzy. Sometimes when she walks around, 
you get an EKG that shows AFib with a rate of 146 and her blood pressure comes back at 122 over 82. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this lady? Yeah, so this is a great example of when DILT would not be the great, a good first choice, you know. So again, this isn't unlike the last case where that guy was in AFib and that was his problem and he was probably symptomatic from it. You know, this woman has uh, a likely GI bleed given the blood thinners, black stools, abdominal pain, you know, and uh, in that case, fluids would be the, the more appropriate answer at this point. So again, you know, the other way that I tried to think about these cases are if this rhythm wasn't AFib, what would I think of the heart rate? You know, and if you told me that I had an 86 year old female that has a GI bleed and they're tachycardic, I would say, yeah, good. <laughs> they should be tachycardic. You know, I'd be worried if they were not tachycardic, like that'd be, that'd be a bigger problem. I'd have to think about some medications and things. So, you know, if this person was in sinus tech with a heart rate of 146, uh, I'd be, I'd be thinking about giving her fluids. So I'm not going to manage the AFib any different than that. Okay. I don't want to treat tachycardia with a calcium channel blocker and somebody who should be tachycardic. Yeah, I agree with you. I got another fun one here. We got a 63-year-old gentleman. He, you get called out for shortness of breath. Um, you show up and he tells you he has some heart problems. He's been short of breath for two days. He can't lie flat. And every time he walks around, he feels like he has to stop to rest. Your initial vitals show an oxygen saturation of 85% on room air. You look at him, he's got some JVD. And when you listen to his lungs, he's got freckles in both of his bases. And he's, his legs look a little bit puffy when you examine him. Your EKG that comes back and it shows atrial fibrillation at a rate of 146 and his blood pressure is 130 over 80. What are your thoughts? Great. So this is a guy that has a history of heart failure and paints a pretty clear picture of heart failure. You know, and these patients in particular are really sensitive to DILT and their pressure can drop significantly from DILT. So the, these are these patients that I, in particular, like I'm, I'm very cautious. And one thing I do before I give DILT in the ER, quite frankly, I, I scour the medical chart and I scour the assessment to make sure that I don't think there's heart failure, okay? So this guy's clearly in heart failure. So DILT would, would not be something that would help treat the heart failure itself. So I would not want to give DILT. I would want to focus on management of the heart failure. And the idea would be if I fix that, if I can improve that a little bit, improve his work of breathing, improve his hypoxia, his heart rate should come down a little bit because I'm treating the cause of the tachycardia. Again, this isn't AFib for the sake of AFib, as I would say, like the first case, this guy has something else that's going on that needs to be treated first. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you know, I've had people ask me, well, is, is heart failure a contraindication for AFib? Well, heart failure in general isn't, but you know, an acute exaggeration of your heart failure, which we see here on this patient would be a contraindication for AFib right off the bat. Um, I got another one for you. You got a 70-year-old female. She's got atrial fibrillation on Eliquis. Her husband calls because she's been having fevers and weakness for the last two days. You examine her. She seems a little bit confused and tired and weak in the, in the bedroom, um, but you get an EKG that shows you AFib with a rate of 146 and a normal blood pressure. Uh, she feels really warm when you're taking those, uh, those leads off her as well. What are your thoughts on this lady? Yeah. So again, not AFib for the sake of AFib. This patient sounds like she's got an infection of some kind, maybe a UTI, you know, maybe some kind of skin infection, ask some more history to see if, you know, there could be a respiratory or other etiology. And if this person was not an AFib, I would expect them to be in sinus tack in this setting, right? So in that case, I'm not treating the heart rate. I would not treat sinus tack um, in the septic patient with calcium channel blockers. I'm not going to treat AFib with calcium channel blockers up front. I'm going to treat the sepsis. 
looking at uh, some fluids, uh, mostly to help help kind of bring that heart rate down and, and treat sepsis. All right, cool. I'm going to throw you one more case. I hope this is a softball here. Um, this is a 50-year-old. You get called out for chest pain. Um, you show up. The patient is clutching their chest. They're saying that they're short of breath, and it came out about 40 minutes ago, and they feel like their heart's racing. You get an EKG as you're getting vitals. The EKG shows you atrial fibrillation at a rate of 146 again, but this time that blood pressure pops back in at 80 over 54. What are you going to do here? Yeah, so this case would also not be indicated for DILT because this patient needs cardioversion. And what I like about this case is it really highlights what you were saying earlier, uh, Dr. Engel, that there's more to instability than just a number. You know, I mean, so this guy's unstable because his blood pressure is low, but you know, the fact that he's having chest pain and trouble breathing also gives you some concerns that he's not perfusing well and having some end organ findings of hemodynamic instability. So this patient needs, uh, needs cardioversion, synchronized cardioversion. Great. Yeah. So I think those are the, the five cases there. They, they really highlight those important things that we should be looking for and asking about and trying to identify when we're uh, encountering a patient with atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. So Dr. Growey, um, I guess I'm going to be asking you a couple, for a couple of these take-home points here. What are your take-home points as we finish up this talk today? Yeah. So I think the first one I'll start with is the one that we just kind of led with that unstable AFib should be managed with electricity and not diltizing. We really cannot emphasize that enough. Outside of that, once we get to stable AFib, uh, let's remember that AFib is a common abnormal heart rhythm that typically is tachycardic. Okay, so it's common to find people tachycardic and that not all stable AFib patients require management of their AFib with DILT. This is not a C-AFib give DILT situation. Okay, and the real main point of this whole podcast and um, really DILT and AFib in general is before you reach for DILT, think about why this patient could be tachycardic. And if the tachycardia is from AFib itself, again, you've got somebody who just has straight AFib, not really any other symptoms. We think this is their complaint is AFib. DILT is usually the right answer. But if the tachycardia is coming from another cause, sepsis, hemorrhage, heart failure, you know, if, they if you would expect them to be a sinus tach, if they weren't an AFib, you really need to treat that cause and not give DILT, okay? Treat the cause of the AFib and not necessarily lead with the DILT. Cool. So yeah, any closing thoughts? Not at all. You know, I think that was a really interesting discussion. I think this medication has use in our system. We want you thinking about it and using it on the appropriate folks. So let's try to remember to think about why the person's tachycardic. And then, hey, if you think you got the right person, please get a hold of online medical control. Um, and let's see if we can get dealt to the right patient at the right time within our system. So thanks, Dr. Growey. I'm glad we got you back. And we roped you into OEM's medical direction team because you're a way better asset. And I'm sure no one will even notice if, if I'm not around because you got time. Tom and Tom were the same people. Yeah, I'm sure most people will think we're the same people. And I'll be honest, I think people come into the freighter ER and think we're and tell the same. me, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> which is okay. We both which is okay. I, I love you. I respect you a lot. I'm happy to be confused with you. Yeah, me so. too. Me too. All right. We'll toss this back over All to right. Jeff here to close us out today. Thanks so much. Docs, thanks so much. Uh, really do appreciate all the insight. Answer some of the questions that have been popping up in the field. Uh, and a nice little review of DILT since we haven't talked too much about it since its introduction uh, a little while ago. So again, appreciate your time. And I thank everybody out there for taking the time to listen. And we will talk to you again soon. Stay safe. Bye all.